Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Welcome to this afternoon's session of Energy Update. Uh, I'd like to introduce the chair for this session, Professor Yun Liu. Uh, Yun is a uh, professor in the Research School of Chemistry here at the ANU, uh, and amongst uh, many other projects, uh, has a research program on hydrogen storage. So I will now hand over to Yun to lead this particular session. Thanks, Kim. Good afternoon, everyone. So I'm chair this uh, the panel discussion uh, sessions. Uh, as you may already know, on the uh, 22nd of the November, and the uh, Kaoig Energy Cell uh, Council has already made the decision to adopt uh, the nitrogen, uh, national hydrogen strategy delivered by the, our guest speaker uh, today, and Australian chief scientist, Dr. Alan Fenkels. So that's, it's, I'm very excited about that. I think, I believe you, you will share this exciting moment. So we will focus on the one and a half hours to discussing about this. So we will, how do we run this panel discussion? So we have guest speakers and he will give a 30 minutes talk. Uh, and then we have uh, three panel members. Each of them have 10 minutes to present the uh, pre to present the perspectives on the national hydrogen strategy and uh, on the, uh, Dr. Finkel's uh, the presentation. And uh, then uh, we have, uh, following that, we have uh, 30 minutes uh, uh, Q&As. So I strongly suggest that if you have a question, reserve that question for the Q&A in the end. Okay. So first of all, uh, for, uh, let me to introduce uh, uh, Dr. Alan, uh, our chief uh, chief uh, scientist, Dr. Alan Finkel, uh, he took the position as Australian chief scientist in 2016. Before this appointment, he served as the president of Australian Academy of Technology Engineering, and for eight years as a chancellor of Monash University. As chief scientist, he led the 2016 National Research Infrastructure Roadmap. 2017 re review into the national electricity market, uh, which we also called a final uh, review. And the 2018 uh, STEM Industry Partnership uh, Forum report. He also serves as a deputy chair of Innovation and Science Australia. The most importantly, Dr. Fanko has been leading the development of a national hydrogen strategy at the request of the Council of the Australian Government, which we will focus on this topic today. So it's our great honor uh, to uh, Dr. Frankel and to uh, welcome you to give the presentation to, re to give the brief overview of the development of hydro national hydrogen strategy. Thank you. Yes. 
Okay, look, uh, Yun, thank you so much for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here in this lovely new facility to talk to you. Um, I've been telling people I'm floating as high as a hydrogen balloon at the moment after the COAG meeting, and I'd like to share with you what it means and a little bit about how we got there. Okay, so the vision is actually expressed pretty clearly in the joint position statement that all of the ministers signed on to. And so we're talking about ministers from Labor states, Liberal states and the coalition government. For Australia to be a leader in the industry, a safe, clean, efficient industry and uh, with a global position. So in brief, what does the National Hydrogen Strategy mean for us? Um, well, let me go through some of the key events. Delivered on the 22nd of November, so just a little bit over a week ago, in Perth at the COAG Energy Council meeting. And it's a framework to support the development of the industry. It's not a business plan. It doesn't say, and I'll come back to this later, but it's not exactly all the things that we do because the roadway into the future is a vision, but it's not well marked, and we need to be adaptive as we go forward. Excitingly, uh, 57 out of the 57 strategic actions in the draft document were adopted unanimously by the ministers in Perth uh, Friday week ago. And if you take 49 out of 50 for the electricity review, that gives me 106 out of 107, which is over 99%. I'm very excited. <laughs> Um, and immediately afterwards, there were some important announcements. So the Commonwealth announced not really new money, but, but directed funding through ARENA and CFC for $370 million worth of stimulus funding for hydrogen-related projects going into the future. And on the Monday, after, actually it was reported on the Monday afterwards, but it was over the weekend, the New South Wales government, amongst other things, uh, declared that they're adopting a target of 10% hydrogen blended into the New South Wales gas networks by 2030, which is a not inappropriate time frame. You can't do these things overnight. So the momentum is building. It's up to us to maintain that momentum. So a couple of things to think about that I believe are significant in what has happened here. Um, I've done a number of reviews, but the process that we use here was unique. So we were asked in August of last year, after I presented a vision statement to the COAG Energy Ministers, to come back in December with, to them, an outline of how we might develop a strategy if we were asked to develop a strategy. So instead of it being an emergency response and somebody writes the terms of reference and you go off and do it, we had time to develop the terms of reference for them to consider. And so I spent time with the proposed task force lead, Alison Reeve, and with Joe Evans from the Department of Energy and others to actually think what is the best way to do this because it's difficult because it's a, you know, hydrogen, no one in the world would be doing hydrogen if it wasn't for a climate change imperative. So there was potential for it to be awkward and we wanted it to be a national strategy that everybody could adopt. So the decision was made to do this from within. So the steering committee, was absolutely only public servants. It wasn't an independent panel. The steering committee was secretaries and deputy secretaries from the states and territories and the federal departments, the relevant federal departments. And I chaired the steering committee. The task force that Alison Reeve led uh, was full-time people from the Department of Energy and Environment here and the Department of Industry with 
a large number of contributions made by the um, public servants in relevant departments at the state and territory level. So there was a lot of cat herding, but well worth it. And then, so, so that's what we got up. Um, in order to bring independent viewpoints in, we created a stakeholder advisory panel of business and academia and community representative groups, and I chaired that, so I became the glue between the independent thinking and the departmental thinking, and of course we ran a number of consultation processes. During the course of the year, I got to brief every single minister at least once, several times in some cases, and uh, two or three of the premiers as well. Because what we wanted to do was develop something that they were comfortable with, that they owned. So. The actual strategy that was approved last week is nothing like what I had in mind a year ago, the day before we started. It truly is the result of the consultation process and the feedback from the ministers, and it's a good result. It's a, it, you know, it's a single, clear strategy, but it's not the same as the Japanese strategy or anything else that I've seen. It's Australia's. And because of that, all those things that you might think of as recommendations, the 57 out of 57, they aren't referred to as recommendations. They're in the phraseology, we agree to do this, we agree to do that. Basically, on Friday the 22nd, they just ratified the position that had already come to. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that you might be able to think of it. I can't think of another case in Australia where governments have got together to create a strategy for an industry before the industry was already developed. We've had strategies to kill industries, we've had strategies to rescue industries, we've had strategies to kick them along, but this is a strategy at the dawn of a new industry. And that in itself is exciting, that we might be able to do it in an optimal fashion if the strategy is effectively followed. Bit of a scene setter. How important is it that we deal with emissions from energy? And so I want to think, just stop for a second and think about civilization. How important is energy to civilization? The way I've been articulating it to friends is as follows. If you took modern medicine out of our society, it'd be back to the Renaissance era, a few hundred years back. Not much was happening with medicine more than 200 years ago. If you took modern education out of our society, it'd be back to the Middle Ages, further back. If you take energy or energy supply out of our society, it's back to the Stone Age. Energy is deeply and fundamentally important to modern civilization. Fred Flintstone would agree with me, I'm sure, and if he wouldn't agree, Dino the dinosaur would. <laughs> but of course, this energy supply that is fundamental to our society comes at a cost, you're very familiar with it, but I'll step you through rapidly. Um, as we burn our fossil fuels to get the energy we need, the coal and the LNG, we have enormous emissions of carbon dioxide, and that is responsible for not quite, but nearly three quarters of the global emissions of carbon dioxide comes from the various uses of fossil fuels for energy for, as a fuel or industrial processes. The solution, Again, everybody in this room would be aware, is clean electricity from in Australia, from wind and solar and hydroelectricity. In some countries, it'll also come from nuclear. In Australia, realistically, the, the go-forward build will be two out of the three, where we haven't built a large-scale hydroelectricity uh, generation dam for more than 50 years. 
and it's not clear to me that there's going to be a turnaround on that, but there's a lot of momentum on building solar and wind electricity generation, as you're very well aware. Electricity is fantastic. It's amazingly versatile, but it's not always convenient. Sometimes we need a high-density transportable fuel, but that fuel itself has to be a zero-carbon dioxide emissions fuel. Gosh, what might it be? You got it. It's hydrogen. Now, how much of the final energy that we use in our society 20, 30 or 40 years from now will come from electricity and how much from hydrogen? No one knows, but people are expecting around about 15% of the end user demand will be served by hydrogen and the remaining 85% by clean electricity. Now, that 15% of hydrogen might itself have been made by electricity there's a lot of inefficiency in making the hydrogen, so you might need 115 or 120% of the world's energy requirements being generated as electricity in order to achieve the end user demand that is going to be there in 2050, and it's always growing. So how good is hydrogen? Um, so let's do a quick comparison to natural gas. So a little bit of pseudo-chemistry, a little bit of pseudo-stoichiometry. So natural gas in its purest form is methane. Methane is H4. When you burn the methane, you combine it with oxygen, you get three things. You get the energy that you wanted. Everybody knows that. What people don't realise in the main, but Ken Baldwin and I do because we've discussed it a lot, is you get water vapour because the hydrogen from the methane has to go somewhere. And you also get carbon dioxide. The water vapour is water vapour, it's not steam. So when you have turned on the stove and you're cooking your spaghetti, water vapour is coming into the room, but it's not condensing on the windows. It's absolutely harmless. But the carbon dioxide, of course, is contributing to the accumulation of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Now let's compare it to, to hydrogen. Again, combustion, combining the, the, the fuel with oxygen, and you get the energy that you want you get water vapour, a little bit more per unit of energy, but not a problem. You get water vapour that doesn't matter. And the third thing you get is absolutely nothing. It's wonderful. So that's the equation that makes it all practical. But where do we get hydrogen from? Well, scientists in the room, go back to the Big Bang. 13.7 billion years ago, 10 to the minus 35th of a second after the Big Bang, all the mass of the universe was here, and within seconds, minutes, and hours, it was all there as ionised hydrogen. So 100% of the mass of the universe back then was hydrogen. If you go to the present day, by the way, that was an artist's impression of the Big Bang, the one on the left. Um, the photo, the galaxy is a real one. If you go to the present time, 94% of the atoms, not the mass, but 94% of the atom count in the universe is still hydrogen. The 6% that's not there is where the hydrogen is fused to make helium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to make all of the elements that natu be naturally occurring up to uranium. Okay, on Earth, hydrogen is, I think, around about the 10th most abundant element, but it's still there in plenty of quantity, but it's not there as free hydrogen. All the hydrogen on Earth, the majority of it is, is bound up. The majority of it is bound up as water. I can't have a glass of water now without referring to it as a glass of H2O, please. All the hydrogen is bound up as water or biomass or minerals and coal or methane. A bit of coal and a lot of methane. But mostly it's in water. 
Producing it is straightforward. It challenges to do it efficiently. Uh, the example here is renewable hydrogen. Take some sun, take some photovoltaic panels, take some water, put it through an electrolyzer or an electrolysis unit, and what do you get out is you get hydrogen and oxygen. Each electrode gets a stream of bubbles. The oxygen, people say, what are you going to do with the oxygen? You let the oxygen go back into the atmosphere, that's a good thing. We don't mind oxygen in the atmosphere and it's a closed loop. You can't change the quantity of oxygen in the atmosphere through this process. The hydrogen is the product we want, so we bottle it. Metaphorically, bottle, well, basically what I'm saying is we put it into the system, you put it into pipes, you take it to where you can use it in an industry or ships, etc., etc. Why should Australia be particularly interested? Well, like other countries, we've got ample opportunity to use it domestically as part of our agenda to reduce emissions, but we also have enormous potential to produce hydrogen for sale overseas to countries that need it. So this map was done by Geoscience Australia uh, on request of the hydrogen strategy, or on the task force that was developing the hydrogen strategy. And this particular map, there are many different versions of this, three or four in the printed um, strategy, but Geoscience Australia has now established an online interactive website and you can set up whatever parameters you like in order to see where the resource potential is. All the dark green is high suitability and taking into account not only where the sun and the wind is, but also where pipeline easements are and um, ports and electricity infrastructure, etc. And even with all those constraints, there's still a lot of dark green on that map. We can make a lot of hydrogen. The World Energy Council refers to Australia as being a giant in the production of um, hydrogen. So what are the fundamentals of the National Hydrogen Strategy? The first, as I said before, is it is a framework. It's not a series of targets. It's a framework to make sure that we can run an industry that's efficient, that's safe, cost-effective, and importantly, it's got to be a benefit to all Australians. I can't elaborate that, but if all it does is bring export income for big companies that are foreign-owned, I don't think everybody would be happy. And there is ample opportunity to do this appropriately. Um, because we don't know exactly how the future will unfold, because there's no experience at any scale in this industry. It has to be very adaptive. Um, an important thing, of course, is that it was adopted by all jurisdictions. I've already indicated that. But as I've alluded, it's, it's not a roadmap. And so therefore, it doesn't have KPIs. It doesn't have targets. So if you look at the Japanese um, strategy for hydrogen, it's fantastic. It's very target driven. They will have X thousand or tens of thousands of vehicles on the road by 2030 and X hundreds of refuelling stations. They'll be importing you know, 300,000 tonnes of hydrogen by 2030 and 10 million or 5 million by 2050. Um, and that works really well, but we can't do that here because we don't know how the export market will truly unfold and it's too difficult in a federation like ours to have specific targets for vehicles on the road. So it's an adaptive approach. It's not a roadmap doesn't have targets, but it does have measures of success. We want to know how many refuelling stations there are and how many cars are on the road and how much we're exporting and how many jobs are being created. And so we're setting up a measurement system with baselines to keep track of that. All Australian governments are committed and they've already been doing things around the country culminating in the national hydrogen strategy. Now, to get started, we asked ourselves how hydrogen can best be used and 
I'm not going to go through every single icon there, but there are an enormous number of ways that hydrogen can be used, and I'll come back to that again a little bit later. But the export potential is important, uh, chemical feedstock for industry. It can help to stabilise the electrical grid if used and implemented properly, and of course it can be used for transport and heating. Okay, we modelled four different growth scenarios. Now, I stress these are models of possible scenarios. They are not predictions. You can't tell at the beginning of an industry exactly how things will unfold. There's no point modelling a prediction. But we wanted to look at some scenarios so that we would know five years and ten years from now how we're tracking against possible outcomes. So the top one in the dark blue at the top, scenario number one, that's what um, Deloitte modelled for us on the assumption that all governments around the world, or most governments around the world, are committed to reducing their emissions, and hydrogen is a significant part of that play. The bottom one, scenario four, where there's the least hydrogen being produced, that's where most governments are still committed to doing something, but hydrogen just loses out as the technology of choice to breakthroughs that we called it electric breakthrough, it could be other breakthroughs. We might run our trucks and trains on rubber bands, you never know, but it's more likely to be breakthroughs in batteries and other uses of electrical technologies um, that just happen to compete effectively with hydrogen. It's a possibility we don't know. I personally think that hydrogen, obviously I would think that is going to be following something closer to the energy of the future scenario. Then there's business as usual in a sort of a more modest scheme. The details are in the report. Then we constructed the strategy, and if you look at the strategy, you'll see the four scenarios I just mentioned, the 57 strategic actions, 15 things we'll be tracking as measures of success, and 13 progress indicators. So this ability to track progress and report back annually to the energy ministers is an important part of the strategy. In a nutshell, the strategy covers the following. A nationally coordinated approach to cover safety, consistent approvals, you know, trying to get the approval processes for new projects smoothed out and more consistent across the states, um, and sustainability. Everything has to be done with environmental sustainability in mind. We want to build local demand. It's not enough just to position yourself as an export-only country. The countries with whom we will have bilateral agreements, they want to know that we're invested in the two. They want to know that we're technologically competent. We need to develop our job skills base and we need to help drive the price of delivering hydrogen down by building up demand because it's a chicken and egg situation all the way through. How do you build the local demand? We've got a concept called hubs, which I'll come back to, but that's where you have a single source of, or a very small number of sources of hydrogen, possibly a single source, but many users, so that even a number of small users in aggregate become substantial. Um, there's huge potential in transport. The biggest challenge for us is getting the vehicles into Australia because we have different design regulations to other countries. And Probably the starting place will be blending with natural gas. As I mentioned, uh, New South Wales has already made a commitment, and I'll show you later on there are some projects underway. Um, very, very important thing, and I'll come back to it again, is leading the development of an international provenance scheme. Customers who buy want to know the provenance so that if there are incidental emissions of carbon dioxide, they have to make their decision as to whether they'll treat that as carbon-free or zero emissions hydrogen. Because when people talk about zero emissions fuel or the zero emissions economy, be aware they are not using the mathematical definition of zero. It's 
as near, what they're really saying is as near to zero as is practical given the technologies available at the time. And um, one of the important things we'll be doing is doing a major assessment of the hydrogen infrastructure needs to, a little bit like the um, integrated system plan that AEMO is doing for renewable energy zones, we want to make sure that the infrastructure for supporting the growth of a hydrogen industry is there or anticipated. Big focus on safety. There's already things happening in Australia. Um, we've been for a number of years a member of the European Safety Consortium called HiSafe. Uh, we very recently joined the Hydrogen uh, Safety Centre, or the Centre for Hydrogen Safety in America. In fact, that was announced by the, the Prime Minister in September of this year. And also in September of this year, Adelaide hosted the Biennial International Safety Conference on Hydrogen. So we established credentials with the international communities and by running that conference, but also in the lead up to that and the other work that South Australia in particular has been leading, we've been identifying what's needed and we've got a process that we're starting to do exchange of emergency services personnel, ambulances and fire and police, so that they can get some training in hydrogen safety also. Uh, the progress on glass, gas blending, there are three projects going on already uh, that might actually start putting blended renewable gas, they're calling it, into homes next year. Gemini in Western Sydney, um, ATCO's got one in Albany, and uh, one with about 750 homes taking place in Tonsley Park that AGRG is doing, that's a suburb in Adelaide. And as I mentioned, New South Wales says that there, we'll set a goal, it's in the Sydney Morning Herald, it must be true, we'll set a goal of up to, or requiring 10% of the state's gas by 2030 to be hydrogen, but that's hydrogen 10% by volume. It's a complex little issue, but remember that we can come back to it in question time. Hubs are where you've got a source of hydrogen with storage, and you're going to use that for things such as gas blending, transport, industrial use, and exports. Again, I won't go through the meaning of every single little icon, but I do want to use this slide to reinforce something that took a while to be clear in my mind, that it's not just clean hydrogen as a fuel. There are three important categories of use of clean hydrogen. So the first is simple fuel, blending it in the gas network so you can use it to heat homes and cook food and water, etc., or using it for transport. The second is industrial use, and there you're using it primarily, partly using it as fuel, but it's also fascinating because it's a chemical. We can make ammonia for fertilisers. We have the potential with hydrogen to convert steel making from the highest single emitting industry, not sector, but industry, to an absolutely clean industry. So at the moment, I can't nail the figure, but when I look it up, steel making is responsible for between seven and 9% of carbon dioxide emissions. That's massive from one industry. And if we decarbonise the rest of the uh, economy and don't do anything about steel, it will become an increasingly large percentage. So there's a large number of um, companies, uh, uh, supported by governments in Europe who are trying to work out how to replace carbon in the steel-making process with hydrogen. It's absolutely theoretically possible. It's a question of doing it economically at scale. So the first use was as a fuel. The second is a chemical. I should say hydrogen is steel-making. It's, it's used for heat, but it's primarily used as a chemical. It's a reductant. Its job is to reduce the ferrous oxide or the ferric oxide back to elemental iron by grabbing the oxygen off and reducing 
the iron oxide to elemental iron, and the byproduct is water. And the third is as a carrier of energy. How else do you capture the resource that we have in Australia called sunshine and ship it off to other countries? So my favourite phrase on this is shipping sunshine. It's a carrier that enables us to do something that it's hard to conceive otherwise. Yes, for some locations we could have uh, long undersea high-capacity cables, but for the general sharing or, or trade in sunlight, in energy, clean resource, Hydrogen's the way to go. When I say hydrogen for something like that, I also mean hydrogen and its derivatives, such as ammonia or um, methylcyclohexane and other chemical conversions. The International Providence Certificate, we are already in early, early stage discussions with other countries, but the idea here is to have the ability to track three things. The country of origin, okay, it's our hydrogen, it's Australia. The second thing is the production technology. People care. So in this particular example, let's say it's renewable electrolysis. And it's different if it's renewable electrolysis compared to electrolysis from the grid because you get a lot of emissions if you don't start with zero emissions solar or wind. But the third is to track the carbon dioxide emissions for every single kilogram of hydrogen that is produced. How many kilograms of, of carbon dioxide were incidentally released in the manufacture of each kilogram. With a scheme like this, countries can set their own thresholds for what they'll buy and consider to be clean. And also there could be blending between hydrogen, for blending of hydrogen from different uh, manufacturing technologies or production technologies. We'll track progress. We've got 13 progress indicators. I'm not gonna try and go through them all, but they're all listed in the strategy. And um, they're important indicators of which direction things are evolving and we'll have a focus on building the right kind of industry, one that is clean and sustainable and innovative and safe. As I said before, benefits for all Australians, that's jobs and income and benefits for communities, it's all discussed. And our goal, of course, is to be a major global player in hydrogen, not only as a domestic adopter, but as an exporter and as a valued partner in the supply chain. The biggest challenge to the growth of the industry, in my opinion, is building demand. Um, during the course of the year, I've met a lot of companies, investment banks and others, who are just mad keen to get involved in setting up a facility to produce renewable hydrogen or, or hydrogen from a fossil fuel pathway. The challenge is, and, and they could do it, I'm convinced, they can go from nothing to gigawatts of solar to produce hydrogen in just two or three years if the demand was there. But building demand takes time. You can't build steel industry overnight. You can't build the trucks and the buses overnight. It takes time. So we need to um, build on our existing competitive advantage in our bilateral relationships, encourage foreign investment, importantly delivering domestic projects so that we can be getting the skills required to handle hydrogen safely and be prepared to respond to and meet demand when it eventuates. And of course, don't overcommit because that embarrasses everybody. Um, we're recommending an adaptive approach. I've used that word already, which means we set the vision. We have a process where we start taking some actions. We look at it, we review, we revise, we adapt. We have those signals that I talked about that will tell us how we're tracking. And if all goes well, ultimately, we realise the vision through that review, revise, adapt approach. 
There are sweet spots for the adoption of hydrogen. So what I've got here is some break-even price points because hydrogen is too expensive today to replace natural gas in big applications, industrial applications and, and electricity generation, but it's not ridiculously expensive for other applications. In fact, it can be competitive. So what I've done here is I said, look, if you look at the current price of wholesale or just produced hydrogen, maybe it's between 6 and $10. No one really knows what it will be at scale. But if you compare two cars, and we did the exercise for a Hyundai Nexo and a Hyundai Santa Fe, which are basically the same body, and it comes in hydrogen as a fuel, petrol or diesel. And looking at the price of petrol and diesel on it was about the 20th of November before we finalised the report. What you see is you can drive the same distance in the, ver in the hydrogen car if you can get the at the same price if you can get the hydrogen to the break-even point of $13.31. Any cheaper than that, then you're winning compared to petrol. The reason why it's so favourably inclined towards hydrogen is that the price of petrol is, per gigajoule is in any event much higher than the price of gas per gigajoule on the wholesale market, then a hydrogen vehicle is actually an electric vehicle, an FCEV, a fuel cell electric vehicle, and they're more efficient at using the gigajoules in the tank than an internal combustion engine is in using the gigajoules in the tank. And all up, you get really good cost effectiveness per kilometre driven from petrol or diesel. But if you're looking at the wholesale price of um, a gas, such as natural gas, at $10 per gigajoule, which is already quite high, We've got to drive the price of producing hydrogen down to a very, very low level, like $1.20. And that's where we're going to have to be by 2030 or 2040 or 2050 in order to have large international sales to countries that depend on importing fuel. We've done it before. These things are slow, though. So the Australian LNG industry is a very successful industry. It didn't happen overnight. Just last year, we got to the point of being neck and neck with Qatar as the world's largest exporter of LNG. The first um, offtake agreement was in 1979. The first drop of LNG didn't ship till 1989. It's taken us 30 years to get to where we are at the moment. Similarly, if you look at solar, the axis should go a little bit further to the left. If you look at the solar, the first solar farm in Australia was in about 1998, I think, just a couple of hundred kilowatts. So it's taken us 21 years to get to where we are, and we're only a fraction of where we need to be if we want to start displacing fossil fuels. We're probably a 50th of where we need to be if we want to totally displace alternative fuels. It takes time, even with the best will in the world. Some key technologies. Um, there are no ships yet. That's why it's a cartoon. There are no ships yet for shipping liquefied hydrogen. But on the 11th of December, Kawasaki Heavy Industry is launching the world's first large liquid hydrogen carrying ship in Japan, and that's exciting. Um, I'm going to go through some unsung heroes. The fuel cell, the picture in the bottom left there, fuel cells will be involved in backup storage and regeneration of electricity in all vehicles, heavy duty vehicles like trucks and trains and ships, um, or just uh, baseload electricity generation in countries that import hydrogen. Fuel cells over a long history of 30 or 40 years have gotten smaller, lighter, cheaper, and most importantly, their mean time between failure uh, has extended out enormously. The unsung hero is the fuel tank. It's a carbon fibre fuel tank. It's many, many, many times more 
structurally sound than a scuba tank. You can, they are filled to 700 atmospheres of pressure. But with a tank like that, a Hyundai Nexo can drive 800 kilometres and then refill up in three minutes. So it's fantastic. 700 atmospheres is like what you'd get in a Pacific Trench, seven kilometres below the surface of the ocean. And lastly, the CSIRO has recently um, been uh, talking about some vanadium membrane separation technologies that enable you at the destinations to separate hydrogen out from ammonia very efficiently. And it's happening. You're seeing trucks, trains, buses, that's me refueling a Honda in Japan last year. And this is a concept drawing. People are actually starting to talk about the toughest challenge in transport, which is aviation. No one really knows how to eliminate emissions from aviation. Globally, there's a lot of activity. There's momentum that's building. Prices are coming down. Companies all over the place are entering the market. Countries such as Germany and Netherlands or the country of California, absolutely committed to using hydrogen, and Australian companies get it too. So what would success look like? Um, we've put in, into the strategy that by 2030, we hope to be one of the top three suppliers to the uh, Asian market. That was us being modest. I hope us to be the top supplier into that market. Um, that we've got a fabulous safety track record, and I think we can do that, that we're reaping economic benefits, and that we've got this provenance scheme running um, with international partners. So we need to have a little bit of national coordination um, to maintain momentum. The COAG working group that has brought the strategy to the table has been invited to keep going, and at least until March of next year, I'll stay on as the interim chair and Alison will stay on as the interim task force leader and the energy ministers are committed to talking to us and thinking through what the best way is to maintain governance for momentum later on. Um, as I said, the long term is not clear. Um, unfortunately, I've got the same slide twice. Um, and just to wrap, hydrogen for Australia's future, it's truly a clean fuel that can do what electrons can't do because it's energy dense and chemistry and batteries can't do. It's just more energy dense. By mass, it's very energy dense. By volume, not as great. Um, it's going to depend on, you know, the market can be activated now, but running the market cost effectively is going to require efficiency increases and cost reductions all the way through. So a lot of R&D will still be required. Uh, huge export potential, economic growth and jobs. What do you say? Carpe diem, seize the day. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. It's really a bigger picture, so, so we're leaving the question later, okay? So next uh, the talk, uh, so, uh, speaker is the panel speaker, Dr. Fiona Beck. Uh, Dr. Fiona Beck uh, was uh, uh, the uh, NU uh, Senior Research Fellow, and <coughs> he's leading the research group of folks on the integration nanophotonics and optoelectronic devices design for application in solar fields and the next generation photo detection technologies. So she's also convener of the hydrogen fuels project at uh, Energy Change Institute of NU for the for the NU's uh, grand challenge, which is a special program. Rang, please, Fiona. Thank you very much, Yun, uh, and thank you for Ken, to Ken as well um, for giving me the opportunity to be here today. Um, and I'd like to start by thanking Dr. Alan Finkel 
for his um, continuing encouragement of deep thinking and nuanced thinking in the area of energy change in Australia. And I'd also like to congratulate you and Alison Reeve and the rest of the task force on such a great job with the strategy and on getting it agreed to, which is amazing. Um, and I think that the strategy itself is a really fantastic document with a lot of nuanced and important information in there. So I'm going to talk a little bit in the role of hydrogen generation uh, for decarbonation in the world and suggest perhaps that it does matter how you'd make that hydrogen. So Ian uh, Cronshaw has done me a huge favor earlier today in presenting this graph to you already. This is from the 2019 World Energy Outlook, and it is a projection of the carbon dioxide emissions to 2050. So as Ian pointed out, the red line is where we're tracking, the blue line is our stated policies, and the green line is where we need to be. So the International Renewable Energy Agency in 2019 has suggested that we can, we can at least do some of this carbon dioxide emissions, quite a lot of it, with switching to renewable energy, electrifying everything we can electrify, and concentrating on energy efficiency. But there are still some things that are not easily electrified. And for that, we have hydrogen. And hydrogen could fill a really important role in decarbonizing industry, heavy transport, and also, crucially, as uh, Dr. Finkel has, has so eloquently uh, suggested, in transporting and exporting our renewable energy resources. But hydrogen can be made in a number of ways. So hydrogen can be made with electricity in a process called electrolysis. This uses about 54 kilowatt hours of power. You need about nine liters of water. And for every kilogram of hydrogen, you get some oxygen. You will also get about 40 kilograms of carbon dioxide if you try to do this with the current Australian grid. But if you do it with the 100% uh, uh, renewable energy, you get zero carbon emissions involved. You can also create carbon uh, from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are hydrocarbons. They're carbons bonded with hydrogen. In a process called SMR, or steam methane reforming, you can start with some natural gas and again, some steam at high temperatures, react them together, and for every kg of hydrogen that you will get, you'll get around 10 kilograms of, of carbon dioxide. You can also use coal. Uh, this is called coal gasification, and unfortunately, our, our uh, lovely Energy Change Institute banner is, is hiding the critical point here, but you will actually get double the amount of carbon emissions that you would get for gas, about 20 kilograms for every kilogram of hydrogen. So, we, some of this hydrogen, uh, sorry, no, some of this carbon dioxide from the fossil fuel production could be captured and stored in an underground reservoir, reservoir such as oil and gas fields. Uh, and this technology is known as carbon capture and storage, also sometimes seen as CCUS, so carbon capture uh, utilization and storage. So CCS can, in principle, be used for any large stationary process that produces carbon dioxide, uh, but it's quite technically complex and it's quite expensive. So uh, as Ian showed earlier today, the EIA is really hoping that we can use some of 
CCS to help us reach our carbon dioxide emission targets in the near future, but so far rollout has been quite slow. There are only two CCS plants associated with power production, fossil fuel power production plants in the world. Um, there's a little bit more action in the gas extraction uh, business. And in fact, the only large-scale CCS whoops, project in Australia is actually the, uh, attached to the Gorgon gas project up in Western Australia. So that project uh, uh, started capturing carbon uh, dioxide and storing it um, this year. It was delayed somewhat, and that was actually three years after the start of gas extraction from Gorgon. And this, um, this, uh, this CCS will reduce project emissions by about 40%. So hydrogen production from coal and gas are actually really great candidates for CCS. And I won't go into the technical details, but suffice to say this is because their waste streams are very rich in carbon dioxide, which makes it much easier to capture. That said, there's only two plants worldwide that use CCS with hydrogen production. One in Canada, which has an 80% CCS capture rate, and another one in Texas where they actually use the carbon dioxide after they capture it for enhanced oil recovery. So this has, it's a little bit difficult to define exactly what the retention rate is there, but it can be a lot less. And capture rates matter. Capture rates matter a lot. So this graph shows the emissions, sorry, I'm very used to wandering around when I talk. I'm really trying hard to stand still. Uh, this graph shows the emissions intensity from various fuels. Um, it's not necessarily a very fair comparison because the hydrogen production uh, um, processes here are only talking about the production itself, not about the energy involved in storage, such as compression or conversion, which can be quite significant. However, it's still an interesting, um, interesting comparison. So the National Hydrogen Strategy is technology neutral. That's one of, their, uh, one of the things that they state. And this means that they use the term clean hydrogen for, for hydrogen that is produced from renewable electricity and from hydrogen produced from coal or gas combined with carbon capture and storage. The strategy assumes a best case capture rate, which is about 90% for gas and 95% for coal. So I've shown that on the graph in the yellow. And you can see that for these wonderful capture rates, yes, hydrogen is much less um, uh, energy intensive than burning any kind of fossil fuel. However, the, these capture rates are possible technically, but they haven't actually been reached in large-scale carbon capture and storage plants anywhere yet. If we consider lower capture rates, the comparison starts to become a little bit less favorable. So a capture rate of about 60%, um, that's the blue bar, would result in more emissions from hydrogen production from coal than you would get from burning natural gas uh, directly. So the national strategy does not at the moment uh, include a mechanism to ensure best case capture rates are met. And as, as Dr. Finkel suggests, this is not the role of the, of the strategy to provide these sorts of KPIs. But there is still a risk that production of coal and gas-based hydrogen could ramp up much faster than the facilities that you would need to capture and store the carbon dioxide emissions from them. This would be a case similar to what happened at Gorgon. Another risk would be that maybe CCS will just never reach these best case capture rates. 
maybe for technical reasons, maybe because it just becomes too expensive. And again, I won't go into the technical reasons, but it's much harder to, to it's pretty easy to get to 60% for uh, coal gasification capture rates. It's much harder to get uh, higher than that. So what could this mean? So as an illustration, we calculate the carbon dioxide emissions if Australia were to produce 12 million tonnes of hydrogen to, for export. So this is around 30% of the energy in our uh, current liquid natural gas exports. Uh, and this is in line with what's been projected in the national strategy and also by ACL Allen in their NICE report from last year. So this would require 30, uh, 88 million tonnes of coal or 37 million tons of gas. So if we could capture and store 60% of the emissions from this new export industry, which would be a fantastic achievement if we were able to achieve this, the hydrogen production from this gas would account for an additional 8% of our current carbon dioxide emissions in all of Australia. So this isn't just from energy, this is from farming and, and uh, land clearance as well. If we were to do it with coal, it would result in an extra 18% of our emissions from Australia. So we've seen that we have a, lot way, a long way to go to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions to where they need to be to avoid catastrophic climate change. And um, as Ian Cronshaw pointed out this morning, we need to be doing absolutely everything we can do, CCS, renewables, energy efficiency, hydrogen, to get to where we need to be. So it's pretty, it feels pretty risky in this environment to, de to de be developing an industry, another new potentially large-scale industry based on fossil fuels, especially when instead we could be developing a renewable energy hydrogen industry. So this is where I do the plug for our project. So the Energy Change Institute at the ANU has launched the Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia-Pacific Grand Challenge this year. And the goal of this project is to create the knowledge to underpin a transformation in the way Australia trades with the world, and specifically with Asia-Pacific, where energy usage is expanding rapidly from fossil fuels, um, expanding rapidly. So um, I'm being uh, smiled at by, my, by our chairwoman, but I will very quickly go to my last slide and just suggest that it is possible for us to move from a very uh, fossil fuel intensive exporting uh, country to one where we're exporting our abundant renewable resources in the form of direct electricity, in the form of green hydrogen, or in the form of uh, steel uh, pr produced uh, without carbon emissions in Australia um, using this hydrogen. So for more information about this, there are a, a number of prospectuses of the project lying around. Ken is our um, director, who, uh, and I would also like to direct your attention to an article that we wrote in the conversation that came out this morning, and um, talking a little bit about the different ways that you can make hydrogen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vienna. So our next panel speaker is Mr. Ed Gakman from uh, Evo Energies. Ed uh, has been working in the high-pressure gas transmission and gas distribution since the 1980s. He's very patient about uh, renewable energy and uh, significant opportunity they present and is currently testing with the support of NUCIT and ACT gas infrastructure for using 
100% hydrogen. Since 2018, he has been managing the hydrogen to gas network testing facility and program. He's also managing the first publicly available hydrogen refueling station in Fishwick in Canberra. So please add. Thanks very much, Yun, and uh, thank you, uh, Alan, for that uh, great introduction to the strategy. Um, I've got a confession to make, though, that um, I, I read your message and uh, I'd have to be one of the anxious people in that message that you gave. Um, I'd prefer to think of it as passionate because I'd like it to go a lot quicker, but um, Alan referred to it as anxious. Okay. Uh, Alan stole my thunder, which is fine, and he's got a lot better graphics than I've got, obviously. But um, it's important. Uh, I'm going to look at the detail that's required more for a gas distribution network to move to hydrogen, in particular high quantities of hydrogen. Um, and the, the, uh, the objectives that have been established in the uh, hydrogen strategy are very important, in particular... The first one there, without compromising safety, and I'll go into the detail about that uh, further on in the slides. The other aspect that's important is obviously the cost of it, uh, the cost of actually doing this. And uh, I was specifically asked to do this testing uh, because we want to understand the cost of actually having to do this in a network. Water availability, access to land, and the bottom line, environmental sustainability. There's plenty of activity happening around Australia. Alan's already pointed some of that out. Um, and a lot of the distributors are actually looking at various aspects of decarbonising the network or being involved in other services, e.g. the export of, uh, of hydrogen uh, as a fuel. So uh, I won't go through each one of those because we've only got a few minutes, but certainly when uh, the question time's on. Um, but... Suffice to say, there's plenty of things going on around Australia to actually assess this, look at the viability of hydrogen and our ability to decarbonise the gas networks. Uh, that slide's courtesy of ENA, by the way. So what I want to do is I want to go into a bit more detail in a specific case study that I've been involved with, and that is the, uh, the decarbonisation of the ACT gas network. Um, which is uh, very important to a lot of people here, obviously. Um, Evo Energy in particular um, is unusual in Australia in the sense that it owns and operates the gas distribution and electricity networks. And that's something that uh, Audrey brought up earlier about this ability to be able to couple networks. So we can do that as part of Evo Energy and we can assess and evaluate that probably better than anyone else in Australia can do because we can work on both sides of the equation. Um, it's a unique opportunity in, in the ACT. Uh, it was mentioned earlier about the ACT climate um, and the fact that it, uh, in, in summer the electricity network in particular is under high load uh, and the gas network is under very low load using about 10% of its capacity. So if we can actually utilise... Uh, that difference 
um, and, and, and feed from the gas network into the electricity network to actually balance that, we can keep the cost down much more for the electricity network and we can, we can do better utilisation on the gas network and keep the cost down of that as well. And obviously that supports the renewable energy initiatives. So decarbonising a gas network, what will it cost? Well, I was asked that question by the board of Evo Energy and I couldn't answer it. And the reason being I couldn't answer it is because there are a lot of components in a gas network and I just couldn't tell them what would happen with, uh, with hydrogen in all those components. So we also need to look at the impact on the safety management system. As Alan pointed out, we have an impeccable record in the gas industry with regards to safety and we don't want to compromise that. Um, even though we want to, in this case, be agile and not passionate, I'd like to do it quicker, um, we need to make sure that all the fundamentals of the safety management system remain whole. I'll explain a bit more what that means. Obviously, how we meet the zero greenhouse gas emissions policy and target requirements, how do we do that in the transition, how do we manage that transition effectively, um, and I've already talked about coupling of the electricity and gas network. Evo Energy just doesn't want to substitute gas for hydrogen. Um, that would be going backwards to some extent, right? Certainly it would help with emissions, but it would be going backwards. What they want to do is they want to look at the value in both utilising the electricity network and the gas network in a better way. Um, which, which will come to that. And hydrogen is part of that um, equation. And of course, there are additional services that are available. The transport industry, uh, demand supply shifting, which Audrey talked about as well, um, and peak shaving capability that we can do with hydrogen. So why do we need to test? What's the, why can't I just stick hydrogen into the gas network and do the same things we've always been doing? The most significant thing is hydrogen is a vastly different product than natural gas. Therefore, we need to test and evaluate all the things that we currently do in the safety management system um, to make sure that we don't compromise it. One of the key areas there, and I'm going to do the same, I'm going to skip a lot of the chemistry here, but one of the key areas there is the relative density or the density compared to air. It is about a tenth the size of a molecule of, of, uh, of um, natural gas. So you can see that if I stick something a tenth the size of a molecule into a gas network and the gas network already has, let's say, half a percent leakage, that leakage Im immediately increases. So we need to understand that really well to be able to make that transition safe. Now, I've been talking about 100% hydrogen. The reason we went to 100% hydrogen as Evo Energy is because we wanted to know where the end point was. A lot of the distributors around Australia at the moment are doing it in a transition phase, talking about 5% in natural gas. We believe that that's pretty straightforward. We can do that. And we can probably do up to 10% that New South Wales is now talking about fairly easily. We might even be able to do up to 15%. But no one can tell me at the moment if I want to get the value out of the current existing asset, 
can I move it to 100% hydrogen without too much cost? So we set up a test facility which has all the components that currently exist in the uh, ACT gas network. Um, over 90% of those components that currently exist, there are still some old pipe that I haven't tested. Um, and we've put 100% hydrogen into those components. Um, and you can see the conceptual diagram there. That's all part of the next phase, which is actually looking at being able to generate hydrogen with solar panels, store it in the gas network, and then utilise it when the, when the peaks and troughs um, are appropriate. So that's the su supply-demand shifting that we're talking about. I won't go through all of the objectives, but the key ones to consider are two things. One is the safety management system is made up of the design, which includes the materials, but it's also made up of the work practices that go into installing that to design and maintaining it to design. So what we wanted to prove was that the materials, the components and the work practices involved in it uh, remain whole. Um, and that's pretty key because none of the testing I've seen around the world yet has looked at the work practices associated with installation of, of networks. So understanding the inputs that contribute to the safety standards, obviously we'll be looking at modifying our standards to make sure that they're appropriate for hydrogen. Am I running close to the wind? Mm -hmm. okay. I'll talk forever. Um, working with ANU on research opportunities, this is the collaboration that is also in the national uh, strategy. Uh, we're collaborating with ANU, we're collaborating with the Institute of Technology that trains the gas fitters to make sure that the industry in total is able to uh, handle hydrogen. We've had community representatives and obviously we're liaising with ENA. The hydrogen refuelling station was also mentioned. Um, I'm part of the project that's actually putting the hydrogen refuelling station in for ActuAGL and uh, the reason that I bring that up is that that again is experience that we're talking about that we need within Australia to be able to get the experts, expertise, the credibility to be able to run a hydrogen industry. Are we there yet? No, of course not, but we're on the way. There's still a lot to do. Um, and I point out some of those things there. Um, you can read them at your leisure. But the key things are for me in particular that the hydrogen strategy, and I know Alan said it doesn't provide a roadmap, but I've called it a sat-nav or a GPS um, because it gives us that focus that we can collaborate together as Australia um, on the particular things that we need to do. And like any GPS, I can update the maps because the, the project needs to remain agile as things become aware around the world. And it also recognises, obviously, that safety is, is really important in this whole thing. A final thought. When you're dealing with public perception, just make sure that your fire extinguishers in your test network are not actually called that. <laughs> Pure coincidence. Thank you. Thanks, Ed.
So the uh, next panel speaker is Mr. Andrew Dixon from uh, CWP. Uh, Andrew has been a renewable energy project developed since 2004, has developed the project in pretty much all the world, all the Australia, apart from Tasmania and the North Territory. He's the development manager of the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, and which is a 50 kilowatt uh, plus wind solar hydrogen project in Northwestern Australia, which probably will become one of the largest and cheapest sources and green hydrogen in the world. Please, Andrew. Thank you very much. It's good to have the opportunity to share this with you. Um, okay, so I'm involved with a project called the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. For those of you who haven't heard of it before, it's a very large wind and solar project up in the Pilbara in the northwest of Australia. Uh, it's been under development for about five years. Uh, I have presented at one of these energy updates before with a slightly different vision. Uh, the project was always conceived as an export project. Our, our, our original vision was exporting via a subsea cable to Java and Singapore. Um, we kind of got the hydrogen bug a couple of years ago. We share the same vision as Dr Finkel and others. And we think it's, it's really the start of a new export industry for Australia. And we're very motivated to help sort of lead the charge and hopefully have others join us. So um, our project's on a very large site. Uh, it's about 6,500 square kilometres. And it's really, it's really easy to lose context for how big that actually is. So when I'm in Japan, for example, and I'm there fairly regularly, I say that's half the size of Nagano Prefecture, which is one of the biggest you know, states, basically, in Japan. And it's just like, wow, that's massive. So it is, it is a huge site on which there is excellent wind and solar resource, um, and which is really ideally suited to production at a large scale of hydrogen and derivatives for local and export markets. Um, obviously, given the scale of the project, it can only be built in phases over almost a decade, you know, continuously going at it. So that enables us to make the most of, firstly, the depreciating inputs. So wind and solar are getting cheaper, electrolyzers are getting cheaper, they're all getting more efficient and effective. Um, and that's good because it, our, our levelized cost of hydrogen or derivatives gets cheaper and cheaper. At the same time as the most uncertain bit, the market, matures. So we're on a long-term journey. Um, it takes a long time, but the market you know, needs to develop, so hopefully we'll, we'll all align. So one of the things that sort of struck me in the hydrogen strategy was this concept of a hub. So obviously, you know, we're a hub, which is, you know, kind of like a, a government throwaway line, um, which is used too often, but it's really a combination of sort of wind and solar and downstream. Um, but in terms of the hydrogen strategy, um, you can read the quote there. So it's a place where you can actually combine sort of uh, production and consumption and have um, innovation and have multiple benefits by having people together in one place. So I would propose or suggest or observe that the Pilbara has the opportunity to be an epic hub in the way that it's envisaged in the strategy. So um, obviously we have the potential for very large uh, renewable energy generation partly again because we've got excellent solar resource, surprisingly good wind resource, and lots of land. And obviously we're right next to the ocean. 
Um, we have uh, existing industries um, that we've sort of discussed a few times today that have been mentioned. So we have um, large amounts of iron ore that we export to the world through two ports. Um, we have an LNG industry. We have a, a, a nascent lithium industry. So all of these things um, exist and are exported from that part of the world. Um, we have huge diesel consumption in the Pilbara. About three billion litres per year are imported into the, into the Pilbara, mostly for sort of shifting dirt and, you know, trucks and machinery and so on. So I think it's one of the biggest single point sources of, of import of diesel anywhere in the world. So a couple of times today people have mentioned fuel security. So it's not just a matter of, you know, bummer I can't drive to work in my car because there's no fuel, but think of all those industries that I just mentioned, they're totally dependent on imported diesel. So what's the opportunity cost of disruption of that diesel? Massive. Um, let alone the balance of trade issues. So obviously it's a, it's a major source of, um, you know, of, of uh, it's a product that we have to import from overseas. We can't produce it locally. Producing large amounts of cheap, clean energy, either for electrification of machinery or converting to hydrogen or derivatives for uh, consumption in machinery, it, it really changes that equation a lot. Um, the Pilbara uh, basically imports everything by a truck currently. So there's, you know, there's stacks of semis, B-doubles that head between Perth and the Pilbara. It's all diesel-based. That is ripe for innovation. There are lots of remote mines and communities who mainly still use diesel. The penetration of renewables is still very low. Again, it's ripe for innovation. Um, there are a number of hydrogen and ammonia initiatives up in the Pilbara, a number of players considering big visions. So obviously, you know, we've, we've been doing that for a number of years. Um, Yarra also, Woodside, Fortescue, you know, a number of big players are starting to really get the vision. And there's, you know, there's ripe opportunity for collaboration and innovation together. <clears throat> Green metals. So obviously, you know, a huge amount of iron ore is is um, is shipped from Pilbara ports. Um, the holy grail in Australia really is downstream value adding, and I think, you know, large amounts of cheap clean electricity, large amounts of cheap clean hydrogen and iron ore in an export oriented environment with decades of inbound. You know, investment experience, you know, and successful international trade, it's, it's ripe to happen in the Pilbara, in my view. Uh, and obviously we have, you know, a skilled workforce in all of these industries that I mentioned before. Uh, and again, decades of successful inbound investment and international trade. So again, you know, a, a hub writ large in the Pilbara, I think this is where there's a, there's a massive opportunity that we're keen to help create. So for those who haven't seen our project before, uh, again, it's a six and a half thousand square kilometre site. Uh, it starts about 25 kilometres inland, goes about another 80 kilometres inland, about 80 kilometres side to side. The diagonal lines you see are rows of wind turbines, up to uh, about 2,000 wind turbines, very large ones. Uh, interspersed amongst that at the substations that aggregate all of this energy uh, are solar PV uh, arrays. So around 18 of them, very big. Um, our, our official number currently is 15 gigawatts. We're just finalising approvals for that. And then we ex we've been working very hard on optimising our site further, uh, particularly now that we're not constrained by a cable with a certain capacity. You know, we're, we're, we're going to be shipping our product in chemical form, so really the brakes are off and we can scale. 
So again, currently it's a 15 plus gigawatt project, uh, wind and solar producing hydrogen. As a number of people today have said, there are a number of vectors for, for shipping hydrogen. Liquid hydrogen may not be the best vector, certainly initially. You know, it's minus 253 degrees Celsius, it's very energy intensive, and the, techno the technology risk is high. Um, methyl cyclohexane is a liquid organic hydrogen carrier. Um, that's probably not our preferred pick, so that really leaves ammonia. So ammonia is minus 33 to be liquid. Uh, the technology exists at scale. It's a 200 million tonne a year market. Um, it's got very low technology risk and, and there's a long track record of safe handling of ammonia, despite it being a noxious gas. So really our project is moving towards wind and solar producing green ammonia, um, primarily for export. Very importantly on our site um, is the combination of wind and solar. So solar alone has a capacity factor of you know, up to 35% of the Pilbara. Da downstream infrastructure, electrolyzers and so on, are, are very capital intensive. So you need high utilization, so wind and solar together. Um, but we envisage uh, lots of other applications for our energy. Essentially, we're producing lots of cheap, clean energy, and we can commercialize it in multiple ways, uh, both locally in the Pilbara and also exporting. Massive jobs potential. We expect around 4,000 people constructing our project for 10 years, about 1,000 people for 50 to 100 years operating and maintaining, and the scale of our project enables lots of manufacturing opportunities locally as well. Uh, as projects scale and move mainly north and west, they move on to the indigenous state, uh, huge opportunities to weave indigenous communities much tighter into the economic fabric of our country, um, and, you know, we're negotiating an Indigenous land use agreement. It's very different doing that for a renewable project compared to a mine because we don't extract the resource that is no longer there at the end, leaving a massive dirty hole. It's very different for renewables. Um, this is who's developing it. I'm getting the wind-up. So there's a, there's a consortium developing it, two developers, uh, CWP, who I work for, Intercontinental Energy. Um, Macquarie Capital joined us a year ago. Vestas joined us a year before that. Um, the traditional owners are key project partners and we've had a long-term relationship with the ANU, uh, really sharing the vision on the zero carbon energy for the Asia-Pacific uh, research program. So thank you very much and I look forward to the Q&A. Thank you. Thanks, uh, uh, Andrew. Now I'm uh, inviting our guest speaker and uh, panel speakers to sit down in front and uh, then so you can ask a question. But I strongly suggest you, before you ask a question, you tell us who you are and uh, which organize, organization you came from. Okay. So. Okay. Any questions? Yes, please. I will wait for the microphone. Alistair Sproul, UNSW. Uh, I miss a, a question for the whole panel. Um, the uh, solar resource, the wind resource around Australia is very good um, for hydrogen water. Uh, just a comment, if you could, given the current state of the Murray-Darling. Uh, just wondering if we're going full scale to be the world's number one in hydrogen. <laughs> um, are we going to borrow water from New Zealand? <laughs> uh, apparently, I'm going to answer the question initially, but Ed, you want to start? 
Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. Um, uh, one of the interesting things about that is that um, we're certainly looking at uh, what, what might be able to be done with wastewater um, so that we're, we're not actually impacting, you know, the pristine uh, water requirements. But also it's, uh, it's, it's important to note that um, to make a kilogram of hydrogen uh, really only requires nine litres of water. You do use a little bit more when, you, uh, when you've got to purify it, but that goes back into the system. And of course, Alan's going to pick up later on that um, when you burn it, uh, that water comes back into the system anyway, so uh, you don't lose anything in that process. Uh, let, let me add to that. Um, we've got plenty of water, but it's not necessarily distributed where we need it, like in the Pilbara or other places. So we have to, first of all, look at how much it is. So if we have... Uh, if we build an export industry, and domestic but driven by export primarily at the level of the highest scenario that was in our report by 2050, we'd be using almost as much water as the mining industry, which itself is a lot of water, but it's still a small fraction of the total fresh water that we use in the country. But if that's being used in areas that where the water's alternative use is agriculture or or city water, it's a serious problem. So yes, we can use fresh water where it's available and there's no competing use. We can use wastewater where it's available um, just through standard um, purification techniques. But the ultimate fallback is to use seawater. The cost of desalination is quite modest. So, you know, the aggressive target I had there was for the hydrogen to go to get down to about $1.20 per kilogram. Um, in either Australian or US dollars, depending on which market you're playing in, but around that sort of price. Um, to purify nine litres of salt water into effectively distilled water would cost less than 10 cents. And that can be all done with renewable energy, renewable electricity. So it's not a big impost on the cost of the ultimate low aggressive price of hydrogen to be getting all of the water by desalination. And if I can just make a comment on that, this is a very active area of research. There's a lot of work going on in the electrochemistry um, uh, field looking at actually doing direct e electrolysis from seawater. So it, it's not there yet, but it's a very big topic. Yeah, so obviously we need a lot of water, but you know, we will, our, our proposal is to build a big desal plant. Um, but again, given the amount of energy we'll generate, it's less than 1% of our total energy use, so relatively trivial. Um, it just makes sense, being on the coast, we can produce our own water and not tap, it, tap into groundwater and just avoid that whole issue. What about all the salt? <laughs> <laughs> Don't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so obviously we, you know, like, like all desal plants that are being built around the world, um, we have inlet and outlet pipes, and we the brine goes back to the sea. But obviously, it's all modelled you know, extensively in terms of impacts and where to do it, how far out to do it. But again, it's you know, we don't expect any significant environmental issues at all. Jing uh, Huang from CSRO. Uh, I want to thank all the panel members for joining this very uh, exciting picture for Australia. Uh, so I, I, I'm not an economist, but uh, it, it feels the cost uh, is very important. So like uh, for the case of solar and wind, the uh, technological innovation and also the scale of the industry 
uh, are very important in uh, bringing the, the whole course down. So I'm, I'm just wondering that uh, for this uh, um, uh, hydrogen industry, so what would be the key challenges to to bring the, the course down to be competitive against like the the LNG and what that and uh, and what uh, what uh, the part what's the part of uh, Australia and what we can do in in that and what's the part we should expect the whole world to, to do. Andrew, you've been doing the numbers, right? <laughs> so the two biggest contributors to the cost of hydrogen are the electricity cost and the, and the cost of the electrolyzers. So obviously, you know, the, the levelized cost of energy from solar PV has dropped almost 90% in a decade, wind almost 70% in a decade, and it still keeps marching down. Um, electrolyzers are at the very start of that journey. Um, so again, as I mentioned before, these are all depreciating inputs. So as time marches on, uh, it gets cheaper and cheaper. And then, uh, you know, and it, while there is a delta currently between green and, and brown, it's, it's actually less than people think, and it's narrowing quickly. Can I give you a rule of thumb on, rule of thumb on that? If you take the figure that Fiona used in her presentation of 54 kilowatt hours of electricity to make a kilogram of hydrogen, that's... 54 cents. Uh, sorry, if you get the price of um, the electricity down to $10 per megawatt hour, that would correspond to 54 cents. So if your ultimate goal is to be shipping it for $1.20, landed in Japan for $1.20, or that sort of price, you actually need to get the price of renewable electricity down to $10 per megawatt hour or less because you've got 54 cents for the electricity input, but then you need more electricity for compressing it, you've got cost of shipping it. But once you get down to $10 or below, there's a good chance of the price of hydrogen being quite competitive. And $10 is feasible around the world now. Um, Large-scale solar and wind projects are coming in at lower... Let's stick with US dollars. are coming in below $20 per megawatt hour. And if you look at the historical curve, it's still tracking down and down and down. So another factor of two, large-scale rollouts like Andrew's talking about where you get the efficiencies of keeping your working crews going and building up to meet your demand, it's plausible. We think it's going to be quite doable. But it won't be easy. It's going to take clever project design and a good relationship between the purchasers and the suppliers. Um, Jenny Goldie again. Question for Alan Finkel. You were there at the COAG meeting. Um, I'm here. Um, the, um, I, I want to ask you about the motivation of Angus Taylor. Angus Taylor and Matt Canavan seem intent on keeping the coal industry alive. Um, what was his motivation for supporting the hydrogen industry? Was it, um, do you think uh, it was really, he saw it as a means of propping up the coal industry or were his motives pure and he really did want green hydrogen? I, I, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm happy to ascribe honourable motivations to them. Um, basically... Ministers are always looking for jobs and economic growth. And I'd say that there's, you know, the ministers around the table at the state level as well as the federal level, um, if you get beyond the domestic use, see enormous economic opportunity through exports. The reality is, whether you like it or not, over the next 20 years, as we build up a hydrogen industry, it's going to be in addition to LNG and coal exports. It's just the way the world's going. In 2018, 
demand for energy increased by 2.5%. And three quarters of that increase was served by natural gas and coal. Only one quarter of that increase was served by renewable energies. So as you know, Asia and India, Africa come out of poverty to middle class and have higher per capita needs for energy, there's just a growing demand that can't be met as quickly as we would like through renewable energy, either as solar and wind directly supplying it or through solar and wind providing hydrogen as a renewable energy source. So from the government's point of view, whether it's state or federal, it's all upside on the export side in that it's additional export revenue, additional jobs and therefore economic growth. So I'll just attribute to that they've never ever indicated to me what you ascribe to them, which is it's a way to prop up coal. Uh, if coal and natural gas are used to produce hydrogen, it'll be pretty stringent. Fiona was using figures of 60% and 80%. It's more likely to be at the best case level because countries like Japan, for example, is the uh, preeminent country that's publicly stating its uh, import goals. It said they don't mind up till 2030 as the world is working out how to produce hydrogen, but from 2030 onwards, they, what they, what they want what they call carbon-free hydrogen. They're not prepared to buy the hydrogen and leave us or some other supplier with all the greenhouse gas emissions accounting. What the definition is of carbon-free is, I don't know. But we referred to CCS in the National Hydrogen Strategy as the fossil fuel pathway with substantial CCS. Elsewhere in the document, we talk about 90% and above as the kinds of level of CCS the countries will be looking for. And at the 90% level, it's not perfect. But as Fiona shows you, it's significantly better than burning the hydrogen, than burning the natural gas. And if you look at industries like transport, which will be a big consumer of hydrogen, where you've got this additional multiplying effect because an electric car operates more efficiently than an internal combustion engine, you get about twice the benefit that Fiona was showing for just directly burning the hydrogen. So even though it might not be the preferred pathway for some, uh, it's a legitimate pathway as we are making a major transition. We're not going to get to where we want to be for a long, long time. And we've got to pull out the stops and use all the tools that are available to us to get to the lowest practical level as quickly as we can. We do not want to be in the position of letting the good get in the, you know, of letting pursuit of perfection get in the way of the very good. Um, if I may, just very quickly, um, I, in our conversation article that, we, uh, that came out this morning, we suggest that one of the other risks of going down the coal and gas uh, plus CCS uh, route is exactly what you stated, right? That in 2030 or, or soon after, um, the buyers of the hydrogen will want clean hydrogen. And if you can't get to 90, 95% CCS, that might leave you with stranded assets or unable to sell your not quite clean enough hydrogen. So, so that there's an, ex an additional potential risk. I'm, I'm, you know, uh, it's hard to tell the future. Yeah, so, no, I acknowledge that, but that's project risk. So, you take the big potential project that is being discussed in Victoria called the HESC, the Hydrogen Energy Supply Chain, where a consortium of Japanese companies and uh, one Australian company with funding from the Victorian government, the Australian government, the Japanese government, and the corporate funding uh, are looking at converting brown coal into 
hydrogen and exporting it to Japan. They're doing a proof of concept at the moment. They've said that they won't make their project decision, their investment decision, until probably the mid-20s. And they will then be taking into account what the likely expectation is of Japan and other importing countries. They don't want to have a stranded asset. It's not just the government that doesn't want to see them stranded. They don't want to have a stranded asset. So they will be looking at the fact that countries will be expecting carbon-free hydrogen. And if they feel that they cannot get to the 90... In the case of coal, perhaps the 95% level, they might not make the decision to proceed. That, it's, it's their call not yours or mine or the government's. So a, a, num a number of um, policymakers have, I think, assumed that you need blue to get to green because green can't be... It can't scale soon enough, um, can't, can't scale far enough, fast enough. But I would challenge all three of those assumptions. Uh, Igor Skrebin from ANU Energy Change Institute. Uh, Alan, you mentioned in your presentation that uh, our strategy is to become one of the three top exporters of hydrogen in the, into Asia. I'm just wondering, who do you think the other two and who are our major competitors in the future hydrogen markets? So when it comes to supply, there are, there are many more countries that will import and use hydrogen than countries that can produce it. Because when you do the numbers, and uh, you indicated some of the numbers on your final graph there, you know, we're talking, uh, you, you had pretty much 40,000, no, sorry, probably about 4,000 terawatt hours of energy going out, which is, you know, 20 times the total electricity generation in Australia to date. So making the sort of quantities of hydrogen that actually are meaningful requires enormous capacity. So the countries that are looking to be world-class suppliers are us, uh, Chile, Norway from its hydroelectricity, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Middle Eastern countries. It's quite possible that the Middle Eastern countries will, using solar electricity, uh, produce hydrogen from desalination for the uh, European market. Um, it's quite likely that we will have a very substantial position in the North Asian market, but it could come from Chile as well. Um, North, North African countries could also get into that. What we have going for us is not only the fact that we've got probably the best combination of solar, wind and land area available, but we're a trusted supplier and we know how to do this kind of stuff really well. So again, you may not be happy about this, but we are at the 51% level by far the world's largest exporter of iron ore. That's despite the fact that we've probably got the most stringent safety and environmental requirements and with the fly-in, fly-out salary structure, we've probably got the highest salary structure in the world. But we've done that by being incredibly innovative and therefore efficient and being able to supply the iron ore at competitive rates. I think we can do the same thing with renewable energy projects such as Andrew was describing. Certainly, I mean, early customers for green hydrogen at scale or hydrogen at scale will be locking in fairly long-term contracts. That's how LNG started. And obviously, you know, national buyers factor in very highly geopolitical risk. And so Australia has lots of advantages, you know, wind, solar, land, but also a very successful investment and trade uh, track record, uh, particularly in northern Australia, but all around Australia, with resources and energy. So that's, again, part of our natural competitive advantage. 
so next one. So we run out of time, so we have a, only have a, a time for two maybe short questions. So please, this lady. Okay. Uh, my name is Lucy Carpinelli, formerly of Barunga Partners, an energy consultancy. Um, so uh, earlier conversation about electricity looked at decentralization as being a key movement in electricity, electricity and having um, regional electricity zones. But our conversation about hydrogen is quite different. It's much closer to the oil and gas model where you have large capital intensive assets that then uh, may exist some distance from consumption. Um, is there a potential for decentralized hydrogen? Could hydrogen exist at the community level? Absolutely. So I mentioned before in the Pilbara how there are, there are remote mines and communities. So absolutely, um, those communities can have their own renewable generation sources. Uh, they can turn that into hydrogen and store it and then use it for transport, for heating, for power generation and other uses. So uh, one of the benefits of renewables, of, of um, hydrogen is that it, it crosses sectors. It can be used in multiple ways and can be produced at a small or large scale. Um, so it's, that's why people are so excited about hydrogen. It's like a fossil fuel, but without uh, carbon emissions at all. And, and in the bigger cities, um, as we start developing transport applications and blending of hydrogen into the gas networks, even if we do that at large scale, it still will be very, very small to the kinds of volumes we need for export. And a lot of that hydrogen can be made on the spot. So if you've got a, I'll call it a hydrogen petrol station, but you know, I mean, a Bowser that is gonna dispense hydrogen, there's no reason not to use electrolysis on site, but the provider has to buy green electrons through a power purchasing agreement because as Fiona said, if you make hydrogen from the existing average electricity grid intensity, it's much worse, much, much worse than burning coal at home to heat your living room. Um, so you have to be using zero emissions electricity, but that's done through economic or commercial contracts. So making hydrogen, dis distributed hydrogen for refueling stations or for blending into the uh, gas network is quite practical. Uh, there's no reason for householders to be using hydrogen and having fuel cells, uh, sorry, electrolyzers at home. It's complex. Um, it would require a lot of maintenance and good understanding of how to handle it. I certainly would not be recommending that. Hydrogen should be done at the professional level. So yes, it can be distributed, but I don't see it at the scale of household. If you have a look at the uh, ACT uh, environment and the potential here, um, the fact is that um, it would more than likely be a, a hybrid model where uh, you have large scale for large scale solar farms, but you also have uh, small scale for uh, regional um, areas where the electric, if you cross coupling it, where the electricity network's under stress and the gas network isn't, and uh, they can cross correlate there. So, you know, it's more than likely that it could be a hybrid model. Okay, final question. Sorry, do you mind if I jump yes. on to that? We run out of time, maybe discussing later. Okay, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, so, wait. Yeah. Can you turn on the turn on the microphone? Just press. Yeah. Jeremy Webb, the Queensland University of Technology. I wonder if Dr. Finkel could set our minds at rest about a report in the weekend, this weekend, uh, which discussed the COAG meeting. They firstly said that 
an attempt by the Queens, uh, the ACT minister to simply rebrand this as a green hydrogen project was rejected by all ministers and we wonder why that was so. Secondly, they pointed out, uh, true or not, I'm not sure, that the lion's share of the 370 million allocated would go to carbon capture, coal-fired hydrogen generation research and that the renewable other renewables are only getting a very small share of that. Thank you. A few things to say. First of all, um, we were asked by all the energy ministers, including the ACT, back in December of last year to take a technology neutral approach. Second, I think the ministers in general were comforted by the fact that Australia will be, through this strategy, committed to taking a leadership role in developing a hydrogen provenance or certificate of origin or provenance scheme. And I think that's critically important. You don't want renegade hydrogen production from fossil fuels without any carbon capture and storage. We've already got hydrogen production at the level of 70 million tonnes, which is two and a half times the LNG export energy equivalent in Australia. We've got 70 million tonnes of hydrogen production without any carbon capture and storage going on around the world today. The goal is to slowly replace that with hydrogen that's either done from renewable electricity or fossil fuels with substantial CCS and to build up whole new uses of hydrogen going forward. So the provenance scheme was recognised by all the ministers, including, well, let me just say by all the ministers, as being an important protection against um, utilisation of hydrogen that wasn't done, wasn't produced appropriately. Okay, thank you. We run out of time. Uh, so first of all, we will thank uh, all the, uh, the guest speakers and the panel speakers for their insight and for audience of the questions. I can see still have a lot of questions. So I invite you to the foyer for the afternoon tea. And in the meantime, we can continue our discussion. Let us thank all the speakers again. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.